we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse, always a beat ahead. Medications have changed the face of medicine. Untreatable conditions became treatable. Many surgeries were suddenly unnecessary. Prescription meds can be lifesavers, or they can be a substitute for a comprehensive look into a patient's health status, including their family and work life. Let's look at some prescription drugs by the numbers. According to the CDC, in 2019, almost 1 billion prescriptions were written in doctor's offices. Put differently, 70% of office visits involve prescriptions. Almost half of people in the United States have taken a medication in the last 30 days, and one quarter of people take three or more medications. Sadly, you know I always have to point out something about COVID. During the COVID pandemic, there was a 20 to 30% increase in prescriptions for various antidepressants. We love our pharmaceuticals, but we hate the prices. And just so everybody knows, and I think we've talked about this, sometimes paying cash is cheaper than using your insurance. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has a set of provisions that are aimed at lowering drug pricing for Medicare. That's starting in about three years. So, Over the next four years, they plan to negotiate prices for 60 drugs and then 20 more drugs every year after that. So the program starts with 10 drugs that account for the highest Medicare spending, $3.4 billion in 2022. And there's a whole list, and we'll talk about that later in the show. Interestingly, The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says that the negotiation program would save the government $98 billion over 10 years. But not so fast. Even the CBO admits that the program would result in decreased research and development of new drugs. One economist estimates that 135 fewer drugs will be brought to market resulting in the loss of 300 million life years. Additionally, and this is what I don't like, the program seems coercive. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid set the deadline for October 1st, 2023, not long from now, for drug companies that manufacture the selected drugs to sign agreements saying they'll participate in the program. A manufacturer that doesn't agree to negotiate will be assessed an escalating non-compliance fee, and it's going to be levied as an excise tax, potentially increasing to 95% of product sales. The CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, plans to send an initial offer by February 1st 
And the drug makers have 30 days to either accept the offer, make a counter offer, or decide to withdraw their drugs from coverage under the Medicare and Medicaid program. So there's only three meetings. So you better know where your head is at and hustle up. But one of the things that I find really bad is there are several aspects of the program that are exempt from administrative or judicial review. So consequently, several companies and industry groups have sued to block the program. They're argued and that they will stifle the, the negotiations with stifle drug development and that the program is unconstitutional, saying it violates the First Amendment, making them have compelled speech, the Fifth Amendment for due process and unlawful taking. And that's where there's no judicial review and the unlawful taking is setting a price that may be too low to cover the cost of even making the drug. And the Eighth Amendment, excessive fines. So this is where it stands now. We want to lower prices, but not at the expense of the Constitution and advancements in research and ultimately of our health. Well, today, my guest is going to talk about the world of drugs and what we can do to improve access and affordability. Kenneth Schell earned his doctorate in pharmacy from the University of California, San Francisco, my alma mater for medical school. He has almost 40 years experience in clinical pharmacology and pharmaceutical science. Dr. Shell served as president of the California State Board of Pharmacy and on the board of directors and as presidential officer of the California Society of Health System Pharmacists. He also lectures at UCSD School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, where he lectures in pharmacy law and ethics. He served, and this is very interesting, and we'll get into this, in compliance and privacy as chief compliance and privacy officer at a major pharmacy benefits manager. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shell. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. It's an honor to be here. Well, let us get going. One question I want to ask, because I always find it amusing how the companies do drugs, that I remember when Versed came out, that's a short-acting <laughs> Valium, that it had been invented, because when I was a resident, we were doing some human testing on it. It had been invented long before it actually hit the market because they waited until the patent on Valium ran out. And it's like, oh, good. Now I have a new drug to have a patent on. So I want to ask you about drug patents and how long they last and how these things get manipulated. And and that's a, a very good question. And understand that each company, they actually get their patent at the time they file with the FDA for that drug, when they first start to develop the drug. And they get a certain period of time. Typically, when the drug comes to market, they only have seven years of exclusivity. That is their seven-year period of time where they're the only ones that can actually market that drug. After that seven-year period is over, 
then of course anybody can jump into the game. But wait, it's not quite that simple because there are all sorts of maneuvers and opportunities that companies have that can actually delay generic drugs from coming into the market. In addition, there are times when the generic drug maker will make a deal with the primary maker of the drug and they will either delay or they will allow their product to not be marketed. They'll take payments. This has since been not done, but those are some of the strategies that companies ex exploited to try to extend their patent life. It does take a while for drugs to come to market. There's a great deal of prep tough testing. The FDA requires an incredible amount of information to show that the drug is safe and efficacious for use. And initially, of course, when you're doing research, the first thing you want to find out, even before you know if it works, is, is it safe? Because a drug could be a fantastic drug. And there are a lot of drugs out there that have never come to market that have been good at treating diseases or infections, things like that. But they've just been shown to be too toxic to be used in humans. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I cured the disease. The other thing is say, but we lost the patient. So you want to make sure the drug is safe and effective. But that takes time and it takes money. And anyone will tell you the FDA process takes a while and it costs uh, the, the drug companies and a fairly good chunk of change to bring a drug to the market. With this in, in mind, the drug companies say, well, we have to make up all the investment and things like that. But consider a lot of these drug molecules, these are actually coming from other like the U.S. government that does research, the Center for Diseases Control and other uh, federal institutions actually do develop drugs. And then they use the pharmaceutical industry to help further develop and then bring them to market. So the cost is, is onerous, no doubt about it, but is it as much as required to one have these really incredible drug pricings? I, I would debate that. And again, I'm not an insider in the pharmaceutical industry. I've not worked for a pharma company and I'm not behind the scenes on how they do that. There's no transparency there with regard to how much it does cost in the bringing a drug to market. There are other things that we think about as well. This is the only country in the world that allows advertising of pharmaceuticals to the general public. Now, last I looked, advertising time isn't cheap. So the consideration would be, well, what if in fact, these companies, instead of marketing their drugs directly to the public, they took all the money they spent on advertising and reinvested it in their research activities and efforts. Might that lower the cost of bringing drugs to market? Hard to say. I don't know. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of things involved in bringing a drug to market. It is very expensive. But how expensive, we will never really know because we don't have access to how much it actually cost to bring a particular drug. We can guess, but we don't know exactly. Well, how about not spending $100 million on lobbying every year? That could be a start too. No comment. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. And this this is, there are other industries as well. The, the gas industry, for example, they have lobbyists as well. We paid the highest amount for gas of any state in, in the union in California. What if, in fact, they took their lobbying money and used it to reduce the price of gas in California? Now, certainly charging higher amounts for gas is a disincentive to drive, which helps the environment, certainly. But at the same time, 
Californians pay a disproportionate amount of money relative to other states for gas. And I wouldn't suggest that Californians drive more than any other, you know, person in the, in any other state. Well, I suppose we sit in traffic more. Uh, nope. that, <laughs> That's very true. If, if you look at the absolute distance you go, sometimes it's only 12 miles, but it took you two hours. So Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> well, so I, and I had read an I time flies, gee, the older you get, the faster it goes. And I don't remember whether in the law that was preventing pharmacists from telling you that the cash price was cheaper than the insurance price, along with that same rule, whether there was some sort of punishment or something about uh, the big drug companies buying the generic company in order to keep the generic off the market. I don't know if there's any legal aspect or whether there it's still one of the techniques, one of the tools to uh, keep their drug as the only one out there for you. So for the ones that have made it out of the patent box, the generic drugs, and, and everybody's heard of them, they are less expensive. But let's talk about them. Where are some of these generics made? Are they made in America? Do they all come from China, Canada, India? Are they safe? Are the substitution safe? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting you bring up that point, because generics are actually made all, all over the world. There are very few, if any, drugs that are actually made in the continental United States anymore. There are drugs that are made actually in Puerto Rico. As a result, when we had that hurricane, they shut uh, Puerto Rico down. We couldn't get anything in or out of Puerto Rico. It results in a lot of drug shortages. So there are some manufacturing done, but manufacturing is done all over the world. China, India, Pakistan, um, and other countries around the world. The FDA requires that certain processes need to be in place for drugs to be imported into the United States market and sold there. And so the FDA, which is certainly under-resourced to be sending people all around the world to go and check out the manufacturers to see if, in fact, these producers of pharmaceuticals are following the U.S. standard. Uh, there was a situation when I was at a, a chief compliance officer where uh, there was a company that is based out of India called Ranbaxy uh, was found not to be in compliant with FDA standards. In fact, they made great pains to hide from the FDA the information that was required. They were penalized heavily, but for the American public, it suggested that, well, maybe these drugs aren't as safe as drugs that we required from the US standard. Now, are they dangerous? Well, it's hard to say. If they were significantly dangerous, we would have seen some really horrific things happen in this country because we do consume a fair amount of pharmaceuticals. Having said that, I would say that they are they are safe. The federal government is very important in shielding the public from unsafe drugs. But at the same time, there's some questionable about that safety because we can't check every government. We can't check every factory or manufacturer outside of this country. We have a difficult time checking the manufacturers within the country, again, because there's so many 
and there's so few employees to route a check and people can not necessarily be forthright with the information that's required from the FDA. But I would say relatively safe. Um, there have been issues and there have been recalls, as there have been recalls with drugs that are actually distributed within this country and manufactured nearby and in this country. There have been recalls of medications. But so far, harm has not been seen in this country to, in a, on a magnitude that would suggest that, wow, we're really worried about the drug supply in this country. Well, on on that note, we you mentioned drug shortages and supply. And after the break, I'd like to get in that a, a little more and some of the causes and what you think could help. There's uh, a new law that's being put forth. And uh, so we'll talk about all that after the break. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Before the break, we were talking about patents and drugs and generics and drug shortages came up. And this is something that's been in the news a lot because there's some pretty common drugs and, and mostly people are talking about Adderall, the ADHD medicine and, and some antibiotics and diabetes drugs and of course some chemotherapy drugs. And what is this all about? Uh, the government of course is trying to do something about it. There's some Drug Shortage Prevention Act that's been proposed that would make manufacturers notify the FDA when they have an increase in demand. So it's, the bill is just being considered. So I said a whole mouthful. What do you think about these shortages? Why do we have them? And what can we do about it? Well, uh, Dr. Singleton, it's interesting. Drug shortages have been around for my entire career that I can recall. Um, I've worked in hospitals where the shortage of drugs that I would have never thought possibly shortage. There was actually a shortage of, uh, of sodium chloride solution. And so it's basically table salt in water. It's a little bit more complex than that, but there was a shortage of that. Um, there's been a shortage of biologic drugs, albumin, which is something that is desperately needed for some patients in serious accidents and then are hospitalized. Antibiotics, you would think that are very common. How could there be shortages? Um, shortages have a variety of mechanisms. One of the mechanisms is the FDA goes into a manufacturer's plant. They say there are some defects in your processes. 
you can't release any products until you've, we, you've addressed those defects. That drug is no longer going to be available. And these things don't happen over a period of time. They happen literally overnight. Now, typically, they're multiple manufacturers of drugs. But as we've seen over the years, there have been a reduction in the number of manufacturers so that they're being close to just a couple of sources of drugs. If you shut down one third of the market, there's going to be shortages. The utilization is not going to decrease by a third. You're going to have to somehow make up that one third if there's three manufacturers to be able to provide to the public. There's also a shortage that's based on an intermediate type shortage that most pharmacies now in hospital pharmacies, they purchase their drugs through what's called the pharmacy wholesaler. There can be actually shortages at your preferred wholesaler, which will actually delay you from getting your medications, which could cause an artificial shortage. There's a third shortage, which is a little bit more onerous, and it's a lot more problematic for people, and that medications actually get diverted into what's called the gray or secondary wholesaler market. And there are companies that will buy up certain drugs and hold on to them and hope that there's going to be a, a tightening or an increase in utilization, and that can cause shortages too. And when that happens, they will increase the price of massively to the buyer, and they will make you know, incredible profits. And we saw this back in 2012, 2016, and 2018, where there were these shortages of solutions of certain types of drugs. These drugs went off the market. We had to have them. People paid exorbitant prices for them because they had to. But the question was, how did some of these places get these drugs? I was involved in a certain a number of times where we actually traced and there, the U.S. has now put a process in place where you can see where drugs came from, where we could see drugs that were being bought and sold to places that you would say, why would they have a drug? Why would uh, outpatient pharmacy in Mississippi buy sodium chloride solution and then sell it down the street to a wholesaler? who owned that pharmacy. Those types of things are illegal and the federal government's getting better at identifying them, but those are some ways that shortages can be created. Of course, there's a manufacturer where they just don't, they can't get enough raw materials to make these, uh, these medications. At that point, then we're really in, in this, this significant problem. But for things like insulin that are made by a different process, it's kind of hard to fathom how you could have a shortage unless, of course, a factory was shut down and they couldn't produce it. But you would think that the consolidation of the pharmaceutical industry has not necessarily been the cost savings to the public. And it's actually put the public's health at risk because as you consolidate, if you lose part of that production, now all of a sudden the public isn't able to access these medications and we were going we were, had mentioned drug access this is one of those things where you may have be able to get to a pharmacy you may be able to get to a physician to prescribe them but if the drugs aren't there there's no access absolutely well why did insulin prices go up so much and and when we think about the market in this country the market for insulin is basically driven by how much people want insulin. And the insulin products that are available, 
dear buyers, it's what the market will bear and if people will pay. And the general public is by and large shielded from some of these price increases because the insurance companies will pick that up. Now, your premiums may go up, your co-may pay may be go up, but if you got a bottle of insulin that may cost $150, $200 and your copay is $30, and now that bottle goes up to $300, your copay may only go up to $50. But if you had to pay out of pocket, that would be a problem. And this is wherein lies the problem. Not everybody has insurance or their insurance maybe not necessarily covers their insulin. I actually had an instance where a, an old colleague of mine, his wife had been on a generic brand of insulin for years. And this is kind of off topic, but it's important to note that she was willing to pay for the price of the brand name drug because she didn't want to be switched to the generic. The, the brand name drug doesn't isn't always easily available, but she was willing to pay more because she had been on it for 30 years and she had done poorly. She would lose control of her diabetes. And this is where, to me, it's problematic with the access because if insulin prices go up, you're going to lose access. People are going to have to decide between eating and having their insulin. And that's just wrong. So, well, gee, can I interrupt? If you don't eat, yes, then you don't do. need insulin. Oh, Marilyn, you're so bad. But <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. No, it 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 really is. It's when people have to make decisions about whether they can feed their families or to provide, a, and these truly are life-giving drugs for people, life-saving drugs, that that's a horrible thing in a country like ours where we should not have to deal with this type of thing. And so the reason why prices go up is because it's what the market will bear, is that certainly you can say consolidation of the market, there are less manufacturers, there's less competition, but at the end of the day, if you can get the money for it. That's what you're going to charge. And while these companies are healthcare companies, and I'm not saying that they're not, you know, sensitive to the needs of an individual public, but what I am saying is that they're in business to make profit. And mm -hmm. sadly, the profit is healthcare. And that brings a lot of discussions <laughs> into this. Well, but what happened with the whole EpiPen? fiasco where this oh god i mean just <laughs> overnight it what it it went up 10 times right and, and that that's another and there's another drug too that's similar to that it's actually used for neonatal seizures where the drug went from two hundred dollars for a vial to thirty thousand dollars is that this these drugs were made by companies but they weren't made by a lot of companies. There's not a huge market in them. They're life-saving, but there's not a huge demand for it. So someone brought, bought the uh, the title or they, they bought EpiPen and they became the sole source for EpiPen. And then they just jacked the price up and there was nothing anybody could do. There's no law that says you can only charge X for a drug. And while certainly there are laws the federal government has saying we will not pay you an excessive amount, but that doesn't extend to the public who's not in a, a federal program. So 
these drugs that they just went off the roof. And then it was the public human cry. And this is an example of the public is waking up to see what power they have. Because if the public had not been so aggressive with their legislators and with the, uh, the presidential office to complain about how this, this was incredible, this is putting people's lives in jeopardy for profit, that there was a system put into place to start to mend that ability for companies to just charge whatever they want for drugs. It's still possible for them to do it. But the EpiPens, when I first got a pharmacy school in 1984, EpiPens were like $20 or $30 for an EpiPen. Now, I get it. That was 40 years ago and inflation, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't go up to, wouldn't have caused it to go up to $400. And again, people had to make decisions. EpiPens are not always used. And that's part of the problem is that you don't get a huge turnover in EpiPens because you don't always use them. And a lot of times they will expire. And this is where the companies made tremendous profit is because you have a drug in a delivery form that's saving public lives, but the public doesn't always use it. And it has a shelf life. It may be one or two years. At the end of the two years, if you haven't used it, you have to dispose of it and get another one. If you expose it to bad conditions like too high of heat, epi will degrade, EpiPens will not be functioning if you store it at too high of heat. Some people keep it in their cars for various reasons, but if it gets too hot, then it becomes ineffective. You have to buy another one. As a result, you have a slow turnover of the product but the company still just made massive amounts, fortunes on this drug. And it was a crime, in my opinion, but it wasn't illegal. Well, what's the story now that they're putting Narcan over the counter? And, and I have to make the distinction. Narcan has been around when I was in started medical school in 1969. And I think did my first ER rotation, third year medical student. There was Narcan, it was IV that you gave it, <clears throat> excuse me. And then they had the nasal spray that obviously made it easy for anybody to use. But Narcan's been around forever and it should be dirt cheap. And I just read that when they're putting it over the counter, it's going to be $44 for a dose. What who can afford that much less somebody on drugs? Right, and, and that that brings to mind a lot of questions because who actually requires the Narcan in the public? Well, there are patients who are sent home on medications and they have, and you understand this because of you've had to treat some of these patients. They have respiratory illnesses. They get put on an opiate to help them with their pain. And suddenly they start to have breathing issues. Now, Narcan can be life-saving in that case. But this isn't where the majority of the Narcan is being used. The majority of the Narcan is being used for people who have overdoses from illicit drugs. As a result, now there's a market for We have all these programs to help people all over the healthcare system, not only as outpatients, but inpatients as well, to make sure Narcan is readily available federal government is subsidizing the purchase of these state governments are as well. Now you have people who say, I can make a profit because now there is a, a demonstrable need 
the public has bought into this and they say, yeah, we have to have this. And people are saying, well, this is what it's going to have, what's going to cost you to have this. And you're right. For one dose of Narcan for $40. Highway robbery. (laughs) I can't even get the words out of my mouth. It's so amazing. But we have to consider that one, the, if you had to pay $40 for a single dose of Narcan, it's a preventative measure. It's not you're going to be buying 100 Narcans every month. If, if you're managed properly with your physician and your for pharmacist and the, all the other health comp- care professionals involved in your care, if you're managed properly, you should never need Narcan. Having said that, the world's not perfect, but you should not be using more than one vial every probably couple of months or a year. You should never have to use it. But if you did, people would start asking questions. Why did you have to use your Narcan? Well, I took an extra dose because I was hurting bad. Well, you know that you can't do that because you've got asthma and your breathing is compromised and this will help. Or I was taking my opiates and then I got anxious. So I took one of my Valiums. Now the combination of Valium and an opiate can depress your breathing. That can cause you to lose your airway. And this is where Narcan once again will come in and save the day. But how much is too much? And I think this is where the market will determine what it is. Can we put regulations to limit the cost of medications like that that are life-saving drugs Absolutely. I think that, well, I'm sure people will weaponize the Constitution and say, well, you can't limit how much I can charge. At the same time, the Constitution was never meant to act against the public's benefit. And there's no question these drugs have, this drug, naloxone or Narcan, has a tremendous benefit to the public. So I think we're going to have to have discussions at not only the legislative level, but I think at the public level, because we know how powerful the public's voice is. And we've seen that happen with the incredible costs associated with insulin, some other drugs, that when the public gets really stirred up, then things start to happen really quickly. If not, there's endless debates on why and how and who and what and how much. But when the public gets, and excuse me for saying this, pissed off enough, then things will start to change rapidly. Well, I certainly hope so with Narcan as somebody who gives narcotics as my profession and knows how to regulate them and whatnot to see all these high school kids and college kids who go to a party and they do something stupid and and they take a drug that's been laced with fentanyl that's very powerful, very strong per unit dose and suddenly they're dead. And if this is something, you know, some people say, well, if you have a lot of Narcan, people use more drugs. Well, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, I think nobody no. wants a teenager to die. I don't care who they are. And it needs to be affordable. And even to the point where these kids going off to a party could afford to buy some. And somebody who has some common sense in the group will hold on to the Narcan just in case. Right. Almost like the designated driver concept where, and, and I couldn't agree with you more, 
we all make mistakes growing up and things like that. And we've all paid prices. Sometimes we got grounded. Sometimes, you know, we lost privileges or whatever. I don't think any parent would want their child to pay the price of their life for making a mistake like that, especially if they were unaware. Sure, maybe they shouldn't have gone to that party. They didn't know that someone came in and spiked their drink or whatever. But at the same time, you only have like six to eight minutes to react to the person who stops breathing before serious damage happens to their brain. And you can call 911 all you want. If they get there in six to eight minutes, but you haven't breathed for six or eight minutes, that's a real problem. So yep. I, I think that the cost, the price, the minimizing the price, I, I would think it's a small price to pay, especially now that it's generic. And you and I both remember when it, well, I remember when it first came out, we thought this was just the best thing that ever happened in pharmacy because now there was something that it was an immediate reversal of opiates. It wasn't something that took a lot of time. This happened within minutes. Oh, seconds in some cases. Absolutely. And so this is such a wonderful drug. And all of a sudden, it's like the the price initially was very high because the company that made it knew that they had a winner and all hospitals because it became the standard of care to have Narcan available for overdoses. You had to buy this drug. Over time, when the generics started coming out, the price fell precipitously and everybody was in that sweet spot. And then it went over to the public. And as do most things, I remember when Motrin was first and it was first released as an OTC. It used to be prescription only, but it was very expensive initially. And then when it went OTC, the prices were a little bit higher than you'd think, but they were reasonably affordable. And that price has started coming down because there are more and more manufacturers who made ibuprofen, the generic form. But that we can't wait for naloxone. We can't wait for that for naloxone to have multiple manufacturers do that and have the price comes down. If $40, some might say, well, what's $40? Two $20 bills. But if you don't have those $20 bills, it's your life. So should we risk someone's life for $40? Wouldn't it be easy or could you be just as profitable or not make this a a profit-making venture to provide public protection? And and don't get me... Oh, God. No, I I know. it's, But that's so true. And it's just like regular stores where there's a loss leader and you know, there's something that's very cheap, but they put something else that's more expensive that's more of a fun food. And the one that's cheap is something you have to have. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about, our hour just goes by so fast. Yes. But in, in, in the final section, I'd like to talk about PBMs. I've had a couple shows on these pharmacy benefit managers. And to hear somebody who's involved in the industry and hear your side of it, and then educate us a little bit about compounding pharmacies. I'm sure a lot of people never heard of them until COVID when they were looking for medicines they couldn't find in their regular pharmacy. So we'll cover those two things in our last segment. Change in the world one person at a time. 
Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Okay, Dr. Shelby, for the break, we were talking about, or I want you to talk about, what is a compounding pharmacy? And in a compounding pharmacy, all pharmacies can compound, but a, a compounding pharmacy is a pharmacy whose sole purpose is to provide medications that are not otherwise available through a major pharmaceutical company. There in California and in other states, there are various rules that apply to these particular compounding pharmacies. They have to provide tremendous benefit to those areas where medications are unable to be taken by patients who are, let's say, they cannot take a, a, a medication that's made by a manufacturer. Let me give you an example. Certain manufacturers have to put preservatives in their products to make sure their shelf life so their shelf life can be maintained. Some patients are allergic to those particular agents that are used to extend the life of medications on the shelf. A compounding pharmacy can produce a medication that does not have that element in it. Now again, it's not going to have as long of a shelf life, but for the patient, it provides them with a medication that they can take that can help enhance or maintain their health. So the sterile compounding pharmacies, they take products from a non-sterile source, or they can take from a sterile source as well, and they formulate it based on a physician's order, and this is how they operate through physician's orders, and then they make it available to the public through that. Most patients don't actually operate, they don't actually go directly to the compounding part, the sterile compounding pharmacy. They usually go through their physician or actually through their pharmacy and pick it up there. However, there are sterile compound, compounding pharmacies that actually do deal directly with the public, but they produce sterile compounds, solutions that are used to help mitigate problems or diseases or conditions that patients have where the medication is not necessarily available from a major pharmaceutical company. Okay, well, thank you for that, because a lot of people ask about that, and uh, it let me know some of the details about it. So thank you. Now we're going to get into that nasty topic, pharmacy benefits manager. They have been railed on by Congress over the last couple of years, and people have been fighting against the uh rebate process that looks like kickbacks. And it looks like they're the ones who are telling you what medicine you can take for what 
condition you can take it for and talk about consolidation. It's like there's just a couple of companies that have all these PBMs and and you have to get your drug from CVS if you have Aetna and on and on and on. So tell us about it. Tell us some of the good side and the bad side from somebody who really knows the business. So, so PBMs actually have been around for quite some time. They actually, the first PBM in the United States was founded in 1968. And it was actually a relatively simple thing. The insurers needed help with ma- managing their pharmacy drug benefit. So they brought in a middleman or a, what they call a pharmacy benefits manager to manage their pharmacy benefits. So these companies actually worked on behalf of an insurer to provide services to insurer to help keep prescription costs from escalating, not to keep them down, but to keep them from going up as fast as they were going. Now recall, there was this huge explosion of pharmaceutical entities back in the 70s and 80s. And that enhanced the need for, at least from the insurer's perspective, a need to have someone overseeing their drug benefit. There were, I guess, there were quite a few. Now there are are three pharmacy benefit managers that probably do about 75% of the business. And so some of the things they do, they don't just like negotiate uh, rebates and, and uh, I guess, and do prescription monitoring, but they also review patient compliance. They will call up patients and ask them, how are you doing on this medication? And make sure they're, they're taking it properly. Uh, they also provide certain services to try to reduce the cost. Like if you're on a chronic medication where you're taking it constantly over a year, and so instead of having you go to a pharmacy every month, that they have what they call a mail order pharmacy working with the PBM that will provide you a three month supply. And that will allow you to reduce one, you don't have to pay as many co-pays. And of course you have the medication, you don't have to keep coming to the pharmacy to get it, which is makes it more likely that you'll continue to take it and you won't run out. They also maintain formularies for the insurance company. So each insurance company says, there are certain group of medications that we will want you to be taking. And they're usually within a certain class where there are multiple opportunities to treat a patient for a certain disease or disease state, but the medications can vary wildly in cost. And as new medications come out, a lot of times people are quick to switch to newer med, which may or may not be any better than an existing med. So the, insurance company has rules for as far as how medications are dispensed to the public, the PBM enforces those rules. They are the ones that say, then they don't say you can't have it. They say, if you want this drug, this is how much it's going to cost you. If you want this drug or a different drug that will do the same thing, and there's evidence to show that it works similarly or just as effectively, then you can pay less by using this one. So the incentive is for the patient to choose the drug that will cost them the least out of their pocket. And then it helps the insurance company minimize how much they have to pay and they can keep their insurance rates down. But they also do cost analysis of how drugs are utilized by 
the uh, insured people for a drug company so the insurance companies can see how the trends are going. Are there take increase in use in drugs, which could suggest an increase in you know problems that these patients are having. They also do process and file and they file claims. So when you go to a pharmacy, the PBM will actually look at the claim and say, yes, this is legitimate. It goes right back to the pharmacy and says, fill it or not, as the case may be, and then you can do it. And they do what they call drug utilization reviews, where they will look at a particular drug to make sure it's being used appropriately. I shouldn't say that. Make sure that it's being used within the scope of the insurers, uh, how they they see their drugs being used for their particular plan. All these things are, it's, the, there is the good part. The part that's not so good is, again, no one knows how exactly PBMs make their money. Well, they have ways of, of getting money. They charge for their service, certainly. They charge when they negotiate with pharmacies, the insurance companies, and drug manufacturers, each of these items. So it's like this triangle. There's the drug manufacturer who makes the drug. There's the pharmacy who dispenses it. And there's the insurance company who oversees the insured, the, the person who's receiving the drug in the public. They negotiate with those three people, say, we will provide this service to you. You pay me a fee. They also process prescriptions. They charge a fee for each prescription that they process. And when they operate mail or pharmacies, they charge a fee for that. Now, again, it's hard to say overall what the cost savings is. The, the industry claims there's a huge savings for the end user. They said that you know the, the reduction in drug spend is 5%. That may be true, but we don't know how much of that money that was and I don't want to use the word skim because it's not really that they collect in the form of what they charge for each of those three elements. Is that more than it should be? But just as we saw with the person who bought up the only uh, patent for EpiPen and immediately jacked the price up, the PBMs are in a position actually to charge what they charge because there's not a lot of competition out there and the insurers don't want to get back in the business of having to go do this. Now, the insurers have in turn bought PBMs so that now the profits that are made by the PBM will actually become part of the insurance company as well. So you have things like CVS Caremark and United Health, things like that, who have, have their own PBMs so that they're working for them. But there's still some independent PBMs out there. There are PBMs that work for smaller insurance companies, Part D, Medicare Part D plans, federal employees, health benefits programs, and state government employee plans. But it's still, you can't really see how they do their pricing. And I know from the pharmacy perspective, pharmacies are really troubled by how PBMs work because insurance companies have networks for their pharmacies. These are pharmacies that are preferred by the insurer to get their uh, prescriptions filled. Now, the PBM negotiates the price with the pharmacy of how much the pharmacy would charge for filling a prescription. And so a patient who goes to a preferred pharmacy will pay a lower cost. It doesn't mean you can't go to another pharmacy. You absolutely can. You will just have to pay more. Well, so the difference can be huge. 
No um, comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, just from personal experience, this whole, uh, I have Aetna as my drug Part D drug insurance. And if you go to CVS, well, until this year, it was free. The one little very old drug that's been around for 70 years, so it's dirt cheap, that I take. And um, now it's $2. But if I don't go to CVS, it was like $15. Now, that's still not a lot, but from free to $15 just for no, going that's to- a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. And again, you you bring up the, the key point here is that the public is, is being charged for something where maybe they should be charged a lot less. And you might say, what's $15 to someone? Well, I, I, I've worked in a pediatric hospital where a patient's mom could not afford the copay for a medication. She couldn't afford it. And it was really only like $10. And so some people are living that close to the edge where $10 will make a difference. So uh, I'm not suggesting that PBM should go away and that we should reintroduce another system. I don't think anybody's suggesting that. But what people are suggesting, and I think is really important, is, is that there be some type of regulatory agency that oversees PBMs. Now, there's a regulatory agency for insurance companies. There's a regulatory agency for pharmacies. There's a regulatory agency for for a lot of things in healthcare, but strangely enough, there isn't one for PBMs because they kind of slid into the healthcare scene and no one really looked at them as really being a real profit center. But then as time went on, people and people are smart. They say, hey, what if we did this? Maybe we could make a little bit more money, but no one knows how much. And from the pharmacy's perspective, and even from the physician's perspective, when you have a situation where somebody has to sign a contract so that you could be a preferred provider for an insurer or something like that, you may actually not be in a position where you're not going to make money or you're going to lose money because you say, look, I can't afford not to be in that network. So it, it becomes a problem when the contracts that are negotiated by the PBMs are such that, at least from the pharmacy's perspective, it puts them what they call underwater. They are charging less for that prescription than it actually costs for them to fill it. So that's a problem there. But again, it, it it's a complex industry. It definitely, I think, some regulation should be instituted here because it will clarify what they can and cannot do. Does it mean that the same types of things won't happen? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that there will be some more accountability, I shouldn't say that, transparency to see what they do. And people might say after the curtain goes up and people see what's behind the curtain, maybe Oz is not there, maybe somebody else is there, but at least people will understand it better so they can say, well, the overall benefit that PBM provides makes sense for them to charge what they charge. And they do provide valuable services. And I worked for one for almost five years and I saw the benefits. I saw the patients who benefit from it. But again, like you said, the, the seamy underbelly of this is no one really knows how much money they make and whether they're actually not passing on 
monies that should go back to the insurance company or to the federal government or whomever, no one knows because it, it's not transparent at this time. And and thank you for that explanation and hearing the other side of the picture of PBMs that I I think I'm truly bothered at, as they call it, vertical integration, where <laughs> one company owns every step of the way. And now that they own the doctors too, so you're starting, you own the doctors, you own the the benefits manager, you own the pharmacy, you own the insurance company. And then you kind of wonder, hmm, who's binding the store here? Who's in charge? And 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 this is a whole nother show that we are going to have to do on really who is in charge and everybody from physicians all the way to pharmacists are losing control over medicine. And I think that'll be a topic for another show we'll do together. So I'd appreciate that because in the end, it's the public that benefits from having the physicians in control of the patients and what they can do and what they can't do. And the pharmacist being able to help them on the medication end. Well, I want to thank you. This has been so informative and I'm sure everybody's enjoyed it. Uh, if you can call it enjoy, but, <laughs> uh, I know, but um, so we'll definitely do it again. And for now, I thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And thank you, Mar- uh, Marilyn, for what you do for the public and with your show. Oh, thank you for saying so. So everybody, Thank you for listening. Just to tell you about our feature, it's starting to be not so new, our AmericaOutloud.shop. And it speaks for itself. It's a shopping site. And we keep things so simple here. If you put in a code when you go to buy something that you just say out loud and you'll get a discount and you can get books, you can get some of the medications we have, you can get Cofix there, some of the medications from the wellness company and all sorts of things. And we definitely have the books of our guests and then all sorts of other books of interest. So take a peek, as I always say, Whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.